Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra $0.25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a $0.25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I am your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastical. I'm glad to hear that. Now, just a note, a number of people by now might have listened to our latest episode of Bloat. Some of you might not. I just want to stress something that was in the episode notes, because I realize that a lot of people don't bother reading episode notes. I respect that. I'm not an episode note reader myself, despite the fact that I put in a fair amount of effort into the, I would say, grotesque stupidity that are the episode notes of So Very Wrong About Games. Now, there are time codes and everything. Those are useful. But in terms of the introductory text, I tend to pride myself on sort of avant-garde absurdism. Last week, I did a riff on Ozymandias, which called to mind the time I redid Mark Antony's funeral oration of Julius Caesar, but recut so that it was Walker defending Fantasy Flight games. Anyway, but I would just like to stress... It was a bit. I wasn't actually angry. I'm not actually upset. I'm very happy that people want to push back on our notion that we can't really move cardboard and people want to assert that we can or cannot. And most importantly, most importantly of all, Senpai noticed me and Efka says he's glad I'm happy. So what else could really matter in the face of that? So true. So... This is a board gaming podcast about board games. We're going to talk about some board games this week and mix things up. We're going to talk about the games we played last week, the news and why it doesn't matter, and our feature game this week. Our feature game is kind of a uh, double bill. We're going to talk about It's a Wonderful World and It's a Wonderful Kingdom by Frédéric Gerard. Walker, what'd you play last week? Mark, you and I got to play a game that was a demo copy provided to us by Rebel Studio. It is called Meadow, designed by Clemens Kaliki. And it is a game that's very much like Quadropolis. You have these action tiles, you are putting them on the main board and taking tiles based on the number on the action token, or you're putting them around the campfire and maybe getting a bonus, but more likely getting the bonus that's on the action tile that you played. Yeah, there's a four by four grid of available cards. If you play your three tile, you have to play it in a particular row or column. And what that means is you will take the third card from that tile. Yeah, and you're building your own little tableau in two different areas, sort of like the main area where you have your ground and you're sort of working your way up. And then you have this sort of path area at the top that you're putting down items that you found and landscapes and so forth. It's a very beautiful game. It looks fantastic. It goes on for a little bit long, but it has very interesting mechanisms where you're sort of building these symbols out and... More symbols mean you can play more cards, and as you play that card, you cover up other symbols, so you have, it's a this constantly sort of malleing sort of tableau that you've got in front of you. That's the part that I enjoyed. So many cards will have prerequisites. Most of the ones that score points, in fact, will demand prerequisites. The ones that don't score are typically ones that you can play for free, as it were. 
And whenever you play a card with prerequisites, you are burying one of those prerequisites. So the available symbols you have in your tableau are constantly shifting and morphing, and what you were able to play will change from turn to turn, and you have to be careful from that perspective not to build yourself into a corner. That grub you didn't care about in turn two could be the thing you desperately wish you still had in turn five. That part was was neat, and it was definitely a little bit different from a lot of the standard tableau builders, a la Terraforming Mars, a la a lot of other things where you just generate a huge number of tags. It's like, okay, well, now I've got 17 of this picture and I can do this to whatever level or I have the, the prerequisites cease to matter. It was impressive that even after an overlong game, more on that in a second, by the end of it, we were still struggling to meet even matching two symbols or three symbols. That part I appreciated. Yeah, because there's like sort of a halftime show where you remove one of the decks and you bring in like a more advanced Yeah, deck. Prince comes out. You sort of, yeah, Prince comes out, he does a number. Everyone's amazed. Absolutely. But then we go on with the sports ball. <laughs> the sports ball here is represented by the Predators, both the Raptors and the Predators. And it's one of those things that it's not quite graduated decks. It's more just splitting from one deck to another. And it's helpful to know that in phase one, you're mostly dealing with burbs and frogs. And in phase two, you move on to the things that eat the burbs and the frogs. And guess what? Nothing eats predators. That's how predators roll. <laughs> yeah, and, and you even, I think, made the comment. It's sort of like that as you build up the cards and cover cover other symbols, the predators or the top of the food chain, you know, sort of caps off that row. Yeah, and, literally and, the apex of, and, of your and nothing, tableau, yeah. And you sort of don't need that symbol anymore because nothing eats the wolf. It's true. And you get sort of a, like a highlight at the beginning of the game. You get one of those north cards at the very beginning. So you can sort of see what's coming and then have 14 turns to work towards halftime. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. I'm quite tired of symbol building tableau builders. And I definitely have very, very little patience for games that are effectively multiplayer solitaire and that last too long. And Meadow absolutely ticks all those boxes. But I was kept reasonably engaged and diverted by the fact that you were constantly evolving your tableau and you had genuine trade-offs to be made. Now, on top of that, the one thing that pushes me over into, I guess I'd play it again if someone asked to, I would ask not to play it, was precisely the aspect that differs it, it, it the most from Quadropolis. And this was actually pointed out by Huey as we were playing. In Quadropolis, you have a set of tiles to draft at the beginning of, of the round, and it's not refilled until the end, which really heightens the aspect of competition, makes your choices really, really painful, and prevents the thing that happens in Meadow all the time. I go grab a card and randomly flop from the top of the deck is exactly the card that the next player needs clockwise. That part was a bit obnoxious, but the game is so long you couldn't run it the way Quadropolis runs anyway, so... Yeah, it's, and while it's the limited number of, I guess you could totally expand the number of cards that are available and then maybe run it that way, but the, there is a, a little bit of a limit Yeah, the structure there. of the game makes it impossible. And the fact that you said it was too long, and we were ripping through turns by the end of it, and it still seemed long. Yes, yes. But as you say, it has a certain visual appeal. It's a little too pastel and and watercolor for my taste. But it definitely had the vaguest notions of thematic coherence by virtue of the way your ecosystem kind of sort of evolves, I guess. Yeah, and I think it would be a great intro game, much like a wingspan, that sort of droll, interesting nature to draw in the normies. <laughs> oh, jeez. No need for the pejoratives, you elitist gatekeeper. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to point out that if you want uh, an intro game or if you want uh, a sort of game to appeal primarily on the basis of theme, you probably want something that's shorter than what we're talking about in Meadow. Solid in excess of 90 minutes, closer to two hours duration. I think you're probably better off with something that's 75 to 90 rather than 90 to 120, but. I'm going to bring in another game just because it it ticks all those same boxes. This is another review copy by Rebel Games. It's called Chronicles of Avail. And I've talked about it a couple of times because it is also is very much an intro game. It's sort of like baby's first adventure game. I know, Mark, sometimes I say things are like are like uh, Mage Knight. I've never heard you say that ever. So the adventures explore out onto these large tiles and when they move over an unexplored tile flips over and it populates with monsters based on the symbols that are on the hex and on the top monster tiles that you put on the hexes has all their weaknesses and their powers and how much how many dice they roll and the bonuses you get when you defeat them so far i've heard no similarities to mage knight not none whatsoever none and um and you sort of go go out there and level up for the big you know, end of the game. So there's, I think if, if someone picks this up, 
in order to, you know, to introduce their children to uh, gaming, you should really DM, you know, Mike-style catacombs because there's quite a few turns by the time the big bad guy shows up and starts marching towards the town. So you're going up, you're you're reaching into the bag, you're getting these new items to make yourself more powerful, and then the big bad guy shows up and then he has so many hit points based on the difficulty level that you've decided and how many players are playing. And this is a co-op, right? Yes, 100% co-op, and then you're beating him down as he advances towards the city because if he enters the city or any of the monsters enter the city uh the you instantly lose it's interesting because the monsters populate and then when you kill them every other turn they respawn again and so you sort of have this interesting timing you know when the boss comes out and because they all start moving towards the city at that time as well so you have all this thing all these things to deal with at that time and then, like I said, it also has the interesting sort of spatial mechanism where you have your little outline of your character and his shield fits where his shield goes and you have this backpack outline and you can only carry as many items as fit and gold pieces that fit in that outline and you're upgrading your weapons, all sorts of cool things. It did everything that I thought it would and I'm looking forward to playing it again. Is it the kind of thing that you would recommend for hobbyist gamers? No. I see. So strictly an intro, kind of light, more family weight. 100%. Kind of, kind of, okay, cool. Like I said, you have this cool little sheet that you can sort of hand out to the kids at the beginning of the day. Don't tell them you're playing a game. Just say, go color this up. They can bring it in and then you fit it into their character sheet and then off they go and you can just sort of gauge their interest, right? You know, adventure out a little bit and if you see the attention span waning, then bring the, you know, the big monster out early and then, you know, and I think it will work perfectly just like that. Sure. I was I was worried you were going to say and you know they had they color in the adventure sheet and they say but oh we don't want to play a board game it's like but we've already been playing a board game we don't quit what we start in this family <laughs> you will play this yeah you met my dad right and then and then you pull out power grid <laughs> <laughs> no no this is you're just using this as a house rule module add on for mage night that's right exactly it's baby's first mage night then that is chronicles of Avel, designed by Presmek Vojtkoviak. And this is the same designer that did Traintopia that I oh. sort of enjoyed as well. Yeah, Traintopia was kind of cute. We played another round of Massive Darkness 2 Hellscape. I cannot emphasize enough that this is really kind of hitting the sort of dumb level of appreciation. Uh, the kind of game that I should should and probably will never pledge for ever again. This is the same group. We've now played three weeks in a row. We're not using the campaign system yet. I don't know that we ever will. We're just enjoying going through the different scenarios and trying different classes. And this time I played the shaman. The shaman, every time they get mana, they don't really use mana so much, but they go up these tracks. And when the track gets maxed out, they get a permanent special ability. Or they can spend things from the tracks to power various abilities. They can summon elemental spirits. There's a whole lot of interesting class differentiation, such that somebody asked on the discord actually would you recommend massive darkness 2 without the kickstarter stuff and there's two ways to approach this question do you care very much about the kickstarter exclusives to which the answer is absolutely no there's not a whole lot of exclusives that matter at all on the other hand do i think the expansions which many of which are available retail add to the experience? The answer is kind of. So the monsters don't really add all that much. There's already a lot of monster variety baked in by virtue of how the items spawn. And to a certain extent, it's largely cosmetic. And you're not going to see a whole lot of wandering monsters, the truly unique enemies on a given session. And so there's a lot of variety there just in the base game. I really like playing with the different classes, though, and a number of the classes get introduced in expansion boxes precisely because they introduce a fair amount of additional rules and a fair amount of additional components. But this is one of those instances where I would absolutely recommend starting with the base game and seeing if you like it. Because, again, I've observed generally in my hobby experience, and this is true both in board games as well as almost all other hobbies, quality is almost immediately universally acknowledged as quality. You're not going to get a whole bunch of people looking at things like some of the acknowledged grandmasters of Euros and saying, oh, you know, this isn't really well designed. It's like, they might say it's not for me, but there's usually a pretty solid consensus, except for nerds like us who might quibble about Ark Nova or something. Obviously, it's great. We're just being stupid. But when it comes to trash, trash is a very particular taste. And when I say that Massive Darkness 2 is my kind of stupid, I think it's a try-before-you-buy kind of situation. Because flavor of stupid I find to be intensely personal. And what you might regard as the right level of static stupidity in chucking dice, you might find tedious or too dynamic or not dynamic enough or what have you. And so this is absolutely the kind of project that I think we need to be moving away from as a hobby. The sort of, you know commit to buying all these expansions up front, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars of all-in gameplay. So, of course, what I'm asserting here is that I'm glad I have it, but I kind of regret having got it. 
But this is absolutely the kind of thing that the two Louis eat up with a spoon, and so we'll probably be playing some more Massive Darkness 2 Hellscape in the coming weeks. And yes, eventually I will show it to Walker, just so we can stop complaining. That would be nice. Yeah. Speaking about, is this your kind of stupid... So what if I had a game, Mark, where you do blind bidding and they still the loser still has to lose their bid? Speed rolling where you have to get sixes no matter what. Take that cards that are top decked and the winner just keeps on winning. Aren't these all great mechanisms? Here's the... Okay. <laughs> so Walker's talking about Noli. Noli was designed by Jack Caesar and Alessio Cavatore. This is another review copy we got. Noli is kind of, I think, a work of genius. And I never want to play it again, and I don't recommend it. Yeah, I, 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 I have been reflecting as well. We walked yeah. away a little disappointed. I'm thinking back. I said, this is some sort of crazy fun, I think. Yeah, exactly. Here's the thing. I will absolutely, especially if there's any co-designs of Jack Caesar and Alessio Cavatore, I will absolutely play anything they put out in the near future because it all ties together reasonably well. I talk a lot about games that either don't hang together, don't have coherence. I'll be talking a little bit more about this later with respect to one of the great Euros of the past few years. And I constantly hold up Senji. Senji is a brilliant example of a whole bunch of disparate mechanisms that shouldn't hang together but do, and there's a kind of genius in that. Noli, although a radically different game, this is like a 30 to 45 minute filler length very simple game. You've got dice rolling, you've got auctions, you've got card management, you've got economic infrastructure, you've got buffs that you can get for the cart and it all hangs together brilliantly the actual game itself it's rich get richer absolutely with weird take that cards and uh, the economic model itself is underlyingly busted but man the fact that it all hangs together the way that it does is kind of work of genius if you've got a friend who's got a copy it's worth your time to try once exactly so what you're doing in only i'll go through very quickly you are blind bidding on four different sort of upgrades that you're going to be able to do. One is going to let you draw more cards. One is going to increase your dice rolling. One is going to let you build a building, which gets you closer to end game. Yeah, which is just the flat victory condition. One of the four things you're bidding on is just flat win. And the fourth is tiebreaker. the tiebreaker one. Because, you know, the, because it's blind bidding, there is sometimes a lot of ties. So there's this path that you move along. So Not when you have a runaway leader, you who, don't. Whoever's <laughs> furthest along the path, they will... Uh, win all ties and then so you're blind bidding sort of hidden behind your shield on all of these four things and you reveal it you go up those tracks put out those boats or whatever it is and then it's time to start rolling it's now it's it, this is based on on something that happened apparently this is a historical fact yeah, i can't i can't be quoted on this a famous regatta that was used to determine fishing rights in italy about four to five hundred years ago yeah and then they weren't happy enough with this one competition. They had to have another competition where the merchants built their towers to these ridiculous heights to show how rich they were. Yeah. So this is what Noli is all about. So then, Meanwhile, yeah. Saracens are building down the city fortifications and another thing that's going on. Yes. <laughs> so in the blind bidding, you might have bought some oarsmen, which will set a, a, a die automatically to six. And then you're rolling your total of, of four dice and you're rolling as fast as you can to get all of your dice to sixes. Whoever gets there the quickest gets, gets the to, best fish. Gets the best fish and and fish are money for the next round because there is no income phase so so you're getting the most money in point of fact this is the area that you flagged during the rules explanation i'm glad you did saving your money is asking for trouble because there is a card in the level one deck that makes everyone else lose all their money so you might be thinking well i don't have enough money to compete with the first place player this turn but if i save up all my cash next turn i can build up my infrastructure and or steal something no 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 you might lose all that money just flat Yep. Take that. <laughs> all your money's gone. Yeah. Anyway, let's not go any more about, about Noli. It is a game you need to experience. I don't know about need to experience. If you have well, the to, opportunity. To, to understand it is what I mean. <laughs> it's it's a work of strange something. There's a lot of interesting design work going on here. Sadly, I mean, it's all in service. <laughs> You've got all this stuff going on that's super interesting and it all hangs together in a weird way. Except for the way that it actually shakes out in actual practice, coupled with the fact that the actual victory conditions, the thing that you do to win the game is just flat every round, one of the four fields. If you win that, you build a piece of tower. When you build six pieces of tower, you're done. Everything else, it's just weird. Oh, it's so strange. And I'm so glad I played it the once. I never want to play it again. And then we haven't even talked about the walls, Mark. There's we haven't even talked about the walls. <laughs> the walls get destroyed. The walls come back. The walls get destroyed. You explain when explaining the rules. You're like, okay, so there are these walls. 
I'm not beautiful wooden pieces. By the way, it's a yeah. lovely game. The yeah. art is lovely. The pieces are lovely. There are these walls. I'm not sure they do anything. And the answer is they don't really do much. They go away. They come back. You're abs- you were absolutely right. It's the hokey pokey of medieval architecture. You put your wall in. You put your wall out. You shake the fish about. It's a whole thing. It's a thing. Noli. That, that's noli. <laughs> oh my goodness. So on the topic of Euros and whether or not they hang together, we played Barrage. We specifically played Barrage with the League Water Project. And I commented on this in Bloat. This was our sort of voyage into the land of the sweaty tryhards. Sweaty tryhard for me is not an epithet. It's more of a descriptor of, of, of cast. And I don't necessarily even mean it as a pejorative. They just approach games in a different way. They tolerated our shenanigans because <laughs> we are but visitors in that land and we absolutely love barrage but what it reminded me of was that as happy as i am to play barrage in any configuration i would infinitely rather play barrage without the league water project because it is much tighter and more focused without that expansion now i i hear tell that the game was originally designed by tomaso batista and simone luciani with the expansion baked in but then they just caved it off for marketing and for retail and for ease of accessibility reasons. Without it, it's more focused on power generation. And it's more focused on competition for power generation and competition over, and this is key, a smaller number of worker spaces. As opposed to, with the League Water Project, what happened was one of the, the people at the table, and this is an entirely legitimate strategy, spent the entire game generating no power at all and almost took the victory. This isn't a criticism of the strategy. It's just not the kind of game that I want to play. I was playing a game about power generation. Walker was playing a game about power generation. And then these other people can play this other game, which is entirely different. Now, I hear tell that one of the dominant strategies anyway is to just max out one of your income tracks by building a whole bunch of buildings and generating a whole bunch of power at any rate. But at the end of the day, even with that being true, if it is true, I take no judgment. Again, investigating whether or not that is true would be the act of a sweaty tryhard, which I am not. I am a filthy casual. So how we got filthy, given that we don't sweat, is an interesting question that I will leave to Jane Goodall and the chimps. But I much prefer when we're all kind of playing the same game and there's competition over those spots. At any rate, Barrage is a wonderful, wonderful Euro game. It is one of those games that brings us casuals and tryhards to get, uh, together. It is probably one of my favorite worker placement games of the past five years. And even with the expansion, even though I think it dilutes, no pun intended, what makes Barrage great, I will still play with the League Water expansion, although it is my preference not to do so. Walker, your thoughts? Love Barrage. I'm in a tournament on Board Game Arena right now. It, it is so interesting watching the different ways people can play. There's no League Water expansion in this. It's just this is just base game, and seeing how you know the game starts out and how different people you know view how the game should be played and strategies and all that stuff. It's a little deeper than I normally go, but it's interesting as this one time experience for sure. Yeah, so you prefer you prefer it without the League Water expansion as well. Yeah, now that yes, now that I've heard what you've talked about, and I can see it sort of manipulating that way. I can see how some of these particular technologies and special buildings, special buildings interact with each other. Not a complete fan. Yeah, it, it introduces the kind of thing that you might expect to find in lots of other euros, which is to say, exploiting combos and weird action efficiencies, which is fine. I don't mind games with those elements. It's just, again, when I prefer how cutthroat and competitive barrages over competing about this spatial geography of a limited water supply and extracting as much power you can out of that context, the fact that there's this literal sideboard where you can literally go do something entirely distinct, eh, not what I appreciate about barrage. Yeah, it's sort of... And especially if you, you're not really super paying attention to what's going on there, it sort of makes that player, you know, you're not, he's not even in the same game. Sort exactly. Of you're, you're, do, you're playing your game, they're playing their game, and there's no interaction. Exactly. And that is Barrage by Tommaso Batista and Simone Luciani, published by Cranio Creations. Speaking about a game where everyone is playing the same thing, Stevenson's Rocket. If you're not building track, you're not playing the game. And there's lots of interesting things going on here because there's different ways to build the track, different reasons to build the track. You're either cutting off other people or you're investing in these different cities or you're sort of steering people away so they don't get their points. Very cool things going on in this game. Stevenson's Rocket is one of those cutthroat euros whereby the most vicious thing you can do is call an auction round or extend a train line one space a little 
little bit in the wrong direction, and suddenly the person realizes that they formerly had board control and stock control, and now they're not going to be able to keep both. And it's those ridiculously tense decisions that I think drives a lot of Stevenson's Rocket, because you've got effectively board control, station control, actions and shares and they're all kind of interweaving in a weird sort of thing that if you wanted to call all games auction games stevenson's rocket would be an auction game because you're effectively leveraging one kind of asset against another all through the veneer of a train game and maneuvering trains to connect various cities i love all uh, reiner knizia tiling games that i've played and i think that stevenson's rocket is his second best after tigers and euphrates it's a brilliant brilliant game originally published in 1999 we reviewed it after it got republished by grail game and that's the more functional, easy to set up, albeit I think slightly less physically attractive version. And that's the version we played. Huge fan of Stevenson's Rocket. But again, it is so cutthroat that it rubs a lot of people the wrong way. It's true. It's got that that cool sort of interplay. As long as you have at least one share in a certain train, you can boycott because someone could go heavy into one train. They have tons of shares. And so they're moving that train along, and as long as you have one share, you can say, no, I don't think I want it to move that way. Right. And they, you can slowly whittle them down so they no longer have control of that train anymore, or you can start vying for actual control. These little mechanisms is what makes it so good. Right. The, the ideal situation, and I say this all the time, is you call a veto round and you don't care who wins. Just the mere fact that you're bleeding them because they're either going to get the train where they want to go, or they're going to maintain their overwhelming share majority. And you can just wait and see which one is more viable for you to control or try to undermine it entirely through the use of another train line. For such a simple game, it's got lovely little interactions of spatial considerations. No two game evolves the same way. I mean, yes, you eventually end up with a monster rail line that has swallowed up all the other trains, but which rail line does it and in what order they get absorbed can make make a huge difference in terms of the overall structure of the game. That's Stevenson Rocket by Reiner Knizia. Play the game of The Mirroring of Mary King. This is by Jim Felly, the mad genius, and I use that in the most affectionate way possible at Devious Weasel Games. He who designed Cosmic Frog, a game of the year of 2020. The Mirroring of Mary King, full disclosure, is a game that I playtested a number of times with the designer on Tabletop Simulator. Waka was there once. And playing The Mirroring of Mary King in physical form really emphasized two things to me. Number one, Jim Felly is able to find a way to put neoprene into the smallest box imaginable. (laughs) And number two, I really hate tabletop simulator. Now, I've been sufficiently removed from digital-only board gaming for quite some time. You know, I gave up on tabletop simulator a long time ago. Well, not a long time ago, several months ago. And even I phased out Board Game Arena, my preferred venue, a few months after that. But I had a certain conception of what it was like to play The Mirroring of Mary King. And then I played it in person. It's like, oh, this game is delightful. <laughs> I didn't, I wasn't regarding it as a burden, but it was definitely like, oh, you know, it's, 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 it's fun. It's got some interesting considerations about card play. I can't really remember some of the icons and I have to remind myself. All right. But sitting down to play in person, suddenly the things that I thought were intuitive and counterintuitive, incredibly straightforward. The iconography that I remembered being occasionally daunting, no problem at all. And it was, it was a joy. <laughs> Yeah, and because the way you buy your skills, you sort of have to buy off the top of the deck and try to manipulate all the stuff. Your ideas. Yeah, the ideas, trying to manipulate this in Tabletop Simulator was a pain. Yeah. This, it was almost like a completely different game. It's wild, yeah, because I've played games in Tabletop Simulator and then in real life before. I'm hard-pressed to specify what exactly is different about the Marrying of Mary King that made it so much more engaging in person as opposed to Tabletop Simulator as opposed to other games. But I've got to say, in terms of uh, rules density, rules length, this is one of the best two-player fillers I've played in a long, long time. And the theming is appropriately strange, coming from Jim Felly. This is about a ghost from centuries past attempting to possess her distant ancestor. And so you're playing as Mary King, trying to resist the possession of the ghost, versus the ghost trying to possess Mary King. It's got lovely little special powers that you play through special power cards. Oh, uh, An interesting tile-flipping mechanism where you play cards and yeah, flip tiles. Yeah, this manifests out into 12 tiles that cover the table. And they're on one side, she's not possessed, and on the other side, she is. And you're flip-flopping these back and forth forth, fighting with each other, and sort of you have to decide on what to burn, right? You're burning through your cards, the end of the game is approaching ever faster, where you get less and less things you can do, lots of different decisions to make. There is actually one, that reminds me of one area in which the physical version I prefer vastly over Tabletop Simulator, and I can point to why. 
one of the key aspects of winning in the Mirroring of Mary King, if you don't win outright, is managing your deck supply. Because as you say, every action you do, every card you play, every idea you buy, every trick you pull involves bleeding cards from your deck. And so you have to be very careful about that. In Tabletop Simulator, you just mouse over and you know exactly how many cards there, there are left in the deck. In person, you just have to make a slightly more heuristic approach to how well you're doing versus how much your opponent's been burning through. And as people who know my approach to a lot of different game situations, it is no surprise that I prefer the slightly more heuristic, intuitive approach to constantly being like, well, I'm sitting on nine and they're sitting on six. Do I really want to spend this one to go do this thing? I think given the subject matter, given the weight of the game, given the length of the game, it's much more appropriate to the flow. And I, as I say, I was, I thought I knew how much I liked the Marrying and Mary King. I was wrong. I like it a lot more than that. And I'm very much looking forward to subsequent plays. And that is The Mirroring of Mary King by Jim Felly at Devious Weasel Games. And this is a review copy we got from the publisher. On the subject of review copies, today we got to play a game called Oathsworn Into the Deepwood. This is designed Here by... We go. Jamie Jolly, and published by Shadowborn Games. So this is another giant sort of campaign-y, get your party together and go out and fight giant rat type game. <laughs> Spoilers for episode one, jeez. Well, that's that's the main thing. It's on all the, it's on, it's the, all the, it's on the front of the, of the box. Like, know, it's, yeah, it's, well, okay, it's worth mentioning. There's a lot to be said about Oathsworn, a lot. Let me start with what's daunting. We have four boxes, roughly the size of Gloomhaven, packed to the gills. And the way that it works is you don't have standees or anything or any form of spoilers as to what you're going to be fighting past episode one. When we waltz into episode two, I literally have zero idea what's going to be happening. I'm going to be told to open up a whole bunch of sub boxes and inside will be the miniatures of whatever we're going to be fighting. That's one of the reasons why there are so many boxes full of stuff. Not only are we going to be fighting the monsters, Mark, we're going to be fighting the game because that's what you do in Northsworn. You have a certain number of gems that are going to quickly run out, so you're constantly fighting how you're going to use those. Even once you play the cards, you put them in this tableau that sort of cycles around your player board and you're trying to fight those to get them back in your hand so you can play them again. And even the gems that you use to play cards, you have to spend those to move around the map. So even just to move is almost impossible where we have monsters that can move six on on hex. So like, so movement is almost completely meaningless because the monsters can close with you at no problem and you have to very much struggle to get anywhere on this map. Okay, I, I'm going to disagree for a couple reasons, and I don't want to get bogged down in the minutiae because I want to focus on some of the other elements of Oathsworn because we're probably going to be talking about it again. That in itself should be an indication of the fact that we, we broadly enjoyed it. There were a couple of key moments. We lost, by the way, which was great. It's been a while since I've lost on the first scenario of anything. Not that we're such great gamers, it's just that usually scenario one is for babies and we don't really do too well. Granted, I bumped the difficulty up a notch, I might recommend going back to the default difficulty, which is, again, saying something. There was an occasion where you, by virtue of your positioning, blocked an attack for the other three of us. There was going to be this huge AoE attack, which was going to blast all of us, but we positioned you such that only you were going to take the hit. We probably would have done better if we had spread out such that the mobs were not going to surround a small number of people. We could have manipulated that so that they would get there. And every character has some kind of weird movement ability that makes movement cheaper. If you're moving the expensive way, you're absolutely right. It's going to be very, very expensive. Largely speaking, the way I would summarize it is thus. This is a whole bunch of noise, and I I don't necessarily mean that as a pejorative, around the idea that fundamentally what you're probably going to be able to do is move and attack once. Sometimes you're not going to be attacking once. Sometimes you'll attack twice. Sometimes if you're really doing well, you might attack three times because you've got those skills lined up and then the card set up. Sometimes you're just going to be moving. Sometimes you're going to be doing special stuff. The question in my mind, having played exactly once, is... Is the struggle of, it's not much of a struggle, but the rules grit of manipulating, it's called animus, I don't like that term, manipulating your animus and manipulating your card flow, does that provide enough substantive, strategic, or tactical decision-making to warrant the rules complexity beyond you have one move and one attack? In games like Gloomhaven, it absolutely does. In games like Assault on Doomrock, I think it absolutely does. In other games, sometimes it's just noise for the sake of noise. Oathsworn, I'm inclined to believe, is closer towards the Gloomhaven, Doomrock uh, spectrum than noise for the sake of noise, but I don't know. 
I'm kind of wishing they did the same thing of that Gloomhaven did is give some of the cards just a basic move and a basic attack that you could default to and spend. You know what I mean? It's a it'd be a very weak attack. It would be just a basic move, but to make it so expensive. But anyway, this like you said, this is our first play. Let's get some more experience under our belt, and we'll see where it goes. I do want to stress a couple other things though with respect to Oathsworn because. Just after you had declared that we were finished with huge buckets of plastic, literally the day after it showed up at our door. And to a certain extent, I approached it with a degree of trepidation because campaign games, to my mind, are less and less hobby experiences and more and more social burdens. Oathsworn gets a lot of things really, really right. You want to skip the story stuff? You can. Just read a simple paragraph instead of going through a storybook. You can do that. Characters dropping in and dropping out, no problem, zero problem at all. Swap them up for a companion, which has a simplified activation sequence and anyone can manage. Or just have another character show up. This is exactly what you need to do to level them up to whatever scenario you want. And that, I think, is the right emphasis. Put your effort in so that it, and make it very clear from the rulebook, you don't always need the same party together. Because, oh my gosh, I'm so tired of saying, well, I don't want to start this campaign. I don't know when I'm going to be with this precise configuration of people again. That, I thought, was wonderful. Yeah, that, and the other one, just to add quickly, if you don't like flipping cards like you do in Gloomhaven for bonuses, then here's a dice system you can use instead. Use either or. I thought that was a great add-on as well. Clearly, a lot of design and development effort went into making the system flexible, and it. I, for one, greatly appreciate the amount of effort they put in for that flexibility. The other thing that's worth noting is that, so far, the writing, I think, is exceptional. The storytelling is great. They've set up the setting really well. I already care about some of the characters, even just one scenario in. It's exceptionally well done. The last time I had this much fun with the setting and world building and character development of a campaign style game was Legacy of Dragonhold. And honestly, 99% of the time, I find all of this writing to be self-indulgent and a waste of time. When I picked up that storybook and figured, okay, here we go. Time for some more reading. A couple paragraphs in, I was already sold. So that, I think, alone is a great testament to the quality of Oathsworn. This is very, uh, like an amalgamation of, of Attack on Titan and, and Nausicaa Valley of the Wind. Oh, where, I thought I liked it, though. Where, where you have this town or city or village that's completely surrounded by a wall, and this, this forest is constantly on the press in with its monsters and death and decay. And there's like these few spattered cities all around still holding out. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing how it develops. I want to see what other enemies it's going to throw at us. I want to see whether the writing continues at that level. I'm curious to see how the leveling up works. Yeah, I mean, I am sh I'm actually shocked by the extent to which I'm enthusiastic about Oathsworn one session in. I was not expecting to like it at all. I was kind of, frankly, dreading playing it. But so far, I have yet to see any major downsides other than, you know... Maybe you don't want another fantasy campaign game. But as far as fantasy campaign games, it's a tremendous uh, level of quality, even if you're going to be wrestling with a lot of boxes of plastic. <laughs> Oathsworn. Lastly, for me, Mark and I played a game called Siege of Mantua, designed by Amabel Holland and published by Hollenspiel. So I guess a way to describe it is a little bit like original Titan by Avalon Hill. You've got these monsters or you still get these units that you're moving around the main map and then when they fight you go to the side map and you do these little mini battles with those units and then you... now i understand where you're going yeah, sorry sorry <laughs> so, yeah so you're you're switching back and forth between this little mini map where you're doing these skirmish battles and then to the main map where you're moving your big units around it was an odd game yes that is hardly surprising given the designer Amabel holland does design weird games i'm not sure if we played it right, I'm not sure I, I'm supposed to group all my units into this giant glob of, <laughs> of, of, of an army and, and march it around. And I call them death stacks. Yes. Death stacks. Maybe it's supposed to be more skirmishy with little battles. And so the, the, the avoidance system, the avoid battle system definitely prefers small battles. The trick is that I found was mostly the victory conditions because you didn't have a, really a reason to fight anymore. Or at least not to split up. And I had no reason to cause a fight if you weren't going to split up. And so we were basically left staring across each other. Now, Annabelle Holland sometimes, I don't know if this was her intention for this design, loves Zugzwang like that. She loves fragile design. She loves Zugzwang. She loves stalemates. But 
the, the comparison that I would make is not Titan, but uh, another game from the Avalon Hill games, uh, Napoleon the Waterloo Campaign, originally by uh, Tom Dagliash and later published by Columbia. It's a block war game. Siege of Mench was also a block war game with beautiful, beautiful printed blocks. Uh, honestly, lovely, lovely, chunky components. But in Napoleon the Waterloo Campaign, you similarly have a sort of strategic map where you're moving Napoleonic units around, and you then go to a sideboard when the fight actually starts. The trick in the Napoleon Campaign was you had victory conditions that made sense. You also had very rudimentary supply rules, whereby with a smaller force, for example, just importing some of those rules onto the Siege of Mantua, I could have tried surrounding your giant kill stack, and thereby tritting you, forcing you to try to chase chase me down and stomp me out, lest I bleed you dry. Similarly, territorial control mattered far more, in that if I kept running away from everything, you would be able to occupy the victory centers and thereby win. So there was this push and pull from a numerically superior force to someone else who was more mobile and able to surround you. But in the Siege of Mantua, surrounding doesn't matter, occupying capitals doesn't matter, so at the, it's just kills. So at the end of the day, we were, I was looking at the map saying, why would I ever fight you? There was a weird... At the beginning of the game, that wasn't true. There was, you had a smaller force that was isolated, and I, the French are overall weaker, have fewer forces. And so I'm like, oh, well, this is interesting. There'll be a sort of cat and mouse thing about trying to fight a fight on your own terms. And once that was over, that was it. I mean, <laughs> not much else to be done. The combat system is also kind of silly. <laughs> yeah, you have this threshold that is, is roughly, you know, anywhere from seven t- to ten on two dice. And if you roll with a modifier, yeah. Yeah, if you roll that, then the whole stack gets destroyed. It yes. just seems to be either all or nothing in every single sort of Very much combat so. roll. Yeah, the, the CRT, I think, could use some work. The, the goal was to have relatively quick, they're, they're called in the rule set piece battles. And indeed, they were quick, largely because everything got annihilated really fast. I liked a lot of the design principles involved, but again, it, it just mostly made me wa- want to play Napoleon, the, the Waterloo campaign from 74. That, to me, I think is a far more successful iteration on largely even the same design principles. So it has, it has giant blocks. It's got giant, beautiful blocks. I'm glad I tried it. This was a gift from a listener, but uh, there, there is generally a consensus that with Amabel Holland's designs, they're all interesting, but sometimes they're hit or miss. And I, I definitely agree with that overall view. And I'm happy to try anything she puts out. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's no dinosaur table battles. And that is The Siege of Mantua. Those are the games we played this week. This episode is brought to you by the spring cleaning champions, Manscaped. This season, make sure to groom your carpets and the drapes with the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Clear out that winter bush with Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 and watch your confidence bloom like the springtime flowers. Embrace the season and join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our special offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code SOWRONGGAMES for 20% off plus free shipping. Whether you're looking to craft your signature look or clean up that neckline, Manscaped has the right tools for the job. Introducing the season's champ, the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, dual LED spotlights, and sleevers rejoice, it's waterproof and comes with a swank carrying case. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark, I got a letter today from Board Game Arena. Yeah. It had a Was pit- it telling you that it's your turn in 27 games? No, I had a picture in it of, uh-huh. of Mage Knight. On the back was written, it's just like a check. <laughs> that's that's pretty meta, Walker. They're awful. <laughs> so mean. So, Freeman Freeze, he has his new big game this year. It's called Findorf. Looks very interesting. I really enjoyed his last uh, game from last year, Fayum. And one before that, we, we played it was sort of like sort of a communistic union not communistic it was about the labor movement it was labor not movement. it was not about seizing the means of production walker i, I suppose <laughs> we found them all interesting and this one looks very much the same very basic rules eight page rule book can play up to five players and you can even profit from the mortality rate by by open running a cemetery that seems like, <laughs> that seems like fun right nice yeah freeman freeze is probably one of the most interesting contemporary euro designers out there Looking forward to giving it a try. We have slightly more news from Heroescape. I repeat, slightly more Heroescape news. Heroescape Watch 2022. (laughs) Absolutely, 100%. We are completely done with large, bloated, excessive amounts of plastic in our games. But Heroescape! Unless it says Heroescape on the box. Unless it's Heroescape or (laughs) Earthsworn. We have our principles and can easily be overwhelmed by really good design. Anyway... Or, and or toys. So, uh, Heroescape has been publishing some updates on its Discord, but they have compiled those updates on a sort of blog format on Hasbro Pulse. So you can go check out Hasbro Pulse and see some of the uh, design sketches and some of the notes on the special abilities of the new units. This is going to be the new master set. And I think this does also tip their hand to something that I've been predicting for a while. I said I'd be somewhat surprised if this reached general retail. I suspect this is just going to be sold through Hasbro Pulse. The fact that the news is being delivered through Hasbro Pulse, I think, is a minor head tip toward that being the case. Anyway, that concludes the latest installment of Heroescape Watch. Now, do you think that would limit its support after the fact? Tough to tell. That kind of that kind of distribution needs me like would would Wait, in, you you thought they were going to sell it at Target again would would be in my opinion lean more towards a one off than a, than a long support. Well, it's weird they of... they have supported and seem to be supporting with new releases their Hero Quest release that they did through Pulse. It's hard to tell. I mean, I guess it all depends on how much money they make. Yeah, it all depends on how much money they make. They're not going to release this. They're certainly not going to release this mass market retail. Zero chance. This is not showing up at Toys R Us, Walmart, or Target. No way. That, having said that, Spirit Island is going to be in Target. What do I know? Yeah. I just some True, guy who shouts right? it. Can't, yeah, exactly. So crazy. But I'd be very surprised if it even made it into tr- traditional distribution channels. I mean, some retailers might get some copies, sure. Who knows? I'm uh, Tune in for the next episode and installment of Heroescape Watch 2022. And lastly in the news, there's a game coming out called Revive. It looks very interesting. The, the art is is interesting to me. It's by the same people who did The Magnificent. And we enjoy The Magnificent. The This is all about sort of reviving a dystopian sort of earth. So we'll see how this pans out. It looks amazing. I saw that on Board Game Geek as well. Those designers, I really like a lot of their work, and I will absolutely be checking Revive out. Yes. Specifically, the pair of Eilif Svensson and Christian Amundsman Osby. I have really enjoyed a lot of what they do, and so I'm quite enthusiastic. The theme also is quite clever. You know, it's you know, many thousands of years after the apocalypse, you're rebuilding civilization. Yeah, definitely going to try it. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to our feature review, which is It's a Wonderful Couple of Games. <laughs> it's a Wonderful World was designed by Frédéric Girard and published by La Boîte de Jeux in 2019. The sort of spiritual successor, It's a Wonderful Kingdom, also designed by Frédéric Gerard and published by La Boîte de Jeu, was successfully kickstarted and released in 2021 and reaching general retail now-ish. These are drafting games, and Frédéric Gerard has a number of other credits to his name, none of which we've played. There was an expansion to the base game It's a Wonderful World called Corruption and Ascension, published in 2020, that introduced a side deck with other stuff to be done. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in It's a Wonderful World and or Kingdom? 
Well, what you're doing is you're making sure you have a plan because you need to collect certain uh, symbols. You need to produce certain cubes. And your early plays are fairly essential. You need to get your engine up and running and use the production timing to your advantage. And then know when to switch from producing cubes to producing victory points. This is how you play It's a Wonderful World. So it's a pure drafting game. There are a number of pure drafting games out there that we've found tolerable. But I think speaking personally, this is probably my second favorite pure drafting game of all time after Fairy Tale. I think Fairy Tale gets the nod because of how quick and how confrontational it is. It's a Wonderful World, though, is very much more about, as you say, economics. It's got some engine building involved. You need to make that pivot between building up your infrastructure and then just producing things that just give you flat points. And I think what it loses in player interaction and direct confrontation, it gains in terms of surprisingly subtle economic considerations. And I'd say it's not particularly complicated. It's certainly no level of barrage or anything like that. But it reminds me a little bit of Furnace in that the order of operations can matter a fair deal in terms of what you're producing. And you have to be very, very careful about what cards you acquire and why. It also reminds me of Furnace a little bit in terms of why you acquire a card can vary, but we'll get more into that later. Well, let's get into it right now. because you're Apparently, gonna be... we're going to get into it now. Right what now. I want doesn't matter here. Nope. You're going to be drafting a bunch of cards, probably seven, six, seven, depending on what expansion you're playing with or, or mode you're, you're playing. And you get to use all of those cards in some way, which is one of the big, interesting parts about this game. You're either putting them out to build throughout the game, or immediately maybe, or you're burning them to recycle. Each card has sort of a recycling value, which gives you a couple cubes, and you can put those directly onto the cards immediately and start getting them ready for production. Well, that's one of the key tensions, because if you could just store up resources, I don't think that I'd like It's a Wonderful World very much. It would just be another traditional kind of tableau building, drafting thing, whatever. But... Whenever you generate resources, either by recycling other cards or when, once production happens, and there are other interesting little wrinkles once production happens, they immediately have to be devoted towards a project under construction or they get socked away in a very, very inefficient rate of exchange where every five gives you one wild cube. Now, sometimes you want that. Sometimes you desperately need the wild cube. I say they're wild, but sometimes projects specifically demand a red cube and then you ha- kind of have to do it. But the idea that you have to manage your production and your projects under production to match the kind of cubes you produce is sometimes surprisingly brain-burning, at least for my feeble brain. You know, I look and say, oh, well, you know, I I don't really want this card, but wait, I generate five yellow cubes every turn. I currently have nothing under production that wants yellow cubes. I should find an output for that if I care. But wait, I have 17 other economic considerations that I need to worry about. So those are some of the trade-offs introduced by a surprisingly simple limitation. Yeah, like you can sort of say, I really need this black cube that's on this card for recycling, but it also is the only card I have left that that needs yellows right. to be built, right? So it's this weird trade-off that you're wondering what to do. And the early decisions you make are fairly essential. Let's talk because of this production, because it's very interesting. So the order in which these five different colored cubes get produced in a set order. So... You could sort of set up your cards that gray, the first one that gets produced, will finish off a building that will that will give you cubes later on down the line. And you could sort of, you know, chain these together that, you know, this gets you cubes to build that. Now you could, will produce cubes in this new color. And then, then you get your engine going. It could be right in the first turn. And this is how you need to get your get going or else you're going to be lagging behind awful quick. Yeah, exactly. The, the exact opposite is sometimes worthwhile, but it's very, very painful, you know, using your yellow or blue cubes to finish a building that then produces lots of gray. There's only four rounds in the game. So although you have to get your infrastructure running, you do need to increase your cube production. There's not a whole lot of runway. Now, it's not the kind of thing where you feel completely locked out of the game. It's sufficiently quick. And it's the case that you can still get a fair number of cards out even when you're doing poorly. You're not going to feel like you're being bashed about the head. But if you want to do well in It's a Wonderful World, you do have to take take that into account. So there are these two very, very simple rules. One of them is you don't store resources. The other is that resources get produced in a certain order. And they lead to surprising trade-offs. And that's one of the things that I really like about It's a Wonderful World, a simple rule set leading to interesting trade-offs and considerations. I will also point out another uh, feature that is a small area of player interaction in terms of the production order. 
Every production type has what's called a supremacy bonus. If you produce more of that resource than anybody else, you're going to get a benefit. You're in the wonderful world. You're going to get a token that's worth a point or possibly more than one point if you built the right card, or you might need to use to cash into something else. Because as we all know, walls are made out of generals. You have to stack the generals like cordwood. And so you need to have enough generals to build the wall. It's the way of things. Don't, don't, don't look at me. It's just, it's, you, it's a wonderful world. Have you ever built a wall before Walker? No. See, I, I don't know. How see, there you go. I, I, I'm a oh, wall I builder. Oh, I see. I was, I was about to say, because the cubes aren't the only resource. Like you just said, you're going to get these tokens from the from the majority bonuses, and that because that leads into the combos that you were talking about. Because you're going to get there's chances to get multipliers on the symbols on the cards, multipliers for these soldiers or standard tableau building stuff. This is where the flat number points at the end of the game. This yellow card is worth three points for every blue card you have in your tableau. Stuff like that. And it's sort of like a double down, right? So not only gonna, not only is it going to get you more cubes sometimes, but it's also going to give you those symbols that you need. And you need to make sure that other people at the table aren't going for these same symbols because you're going to run out of cards awfully quick. Because if you're both drafting the same symbols, then the cards aren't going to be there for you to get. And there are enough, there's enough variants. There's like tanks and 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 factories and there's enough variance that in a four player game, everyone can pretty well get their own sort of specialty and not have to worry about it. Or it also opens up the door for hate drafting where you can take those key cards away and just recycle them for one cube. Exactly. So the thing that we always talk about in the context of fairy tale is hate drafting is facilitated by the fact that you draw five, but only play three. And so you can just decide whether you need to draw one that you want to play or draw one to deny it from an opponent. In the context of It's a Wonderful World, if you know your opponent is drowning in yellow production, you can keep that yellow card from them that they could build very easily. And you're not really losing all that much in terms of opportunity cost because you can then recycle it for a cube. So that kind of lessens the opportunity cost there. It's also, there's a bit of player interaction from the supremacy bonus. There's a little bit of player interaction from just knowing what they're, they're producing, what they're looking for. It's not a huge amount, honestly. Very frequently, I feel like I can play reasonably optimally while not paying too, too much attention to what my opponents are doing. There's just enough. I, I wish there were more, suffice to say, but I don't think it's a serious, serious deficiency. I also like how you're just drawing off the one giant deck. And it's not graduated. It's the same deck. So you have these interesting choice things at the beginning of the game. You might get that really nice point generator at the beginning. And then you have to make that decision. Am I going to put it on the table and have it sit there throughout the whole game and hopefully get it built? Or I'm going to recycle it for that one cube and, and, and write it off and hope another one comes up later on. Yeah, but at the same time, unlike games like Seven Wonders, for example, one of the things that I don't like about Seven Wonders, and there are lots of things I don't like about Seven Wonders, one of them is you really have to front load a lot of your decisions. You have to commit to whether you're doing your science strategy. You have to commit to building out certain kinds of suits. In It's a Wonderful World, you don't have to make those commitments precisely because of just the way you use your, your cards. They're multi-use. That massive card that you drafted in round one, you can decide to just recycle it and say goodbye. You can decide to focus on a different color mid way through the game in order to really uh, run up your score, you have a much greater degree of flexibility in that way. And while we're talking about it, can we just talk about some of the cards? Because the theming of It's a Wonderful World, I find aggressively delightful. Yes, it's sort of this dystopian far future. Everything's bright and cheery. There's cults. And creepy at the same time. Yeah, there's cults and robots and jets and... You're settling off the Centauri. You're finding another dimension. You're resurrecting dinosaurs. You're finding Alexander's tomb. You're doing... You're finding Shangri-La. You're finding the Garden of Hesperides. You're dividing things by zero. You're doing... You're discovering immortality. You're also building tanks. You're also building zeppelins. You're also building war robots. <laughs> you're, you're opening up a stall that sells silk. No, wait. That's... that's, that's <laughs> yeah, a... exactly. If you're... And I keep saying this. I don't know. Some people might find a theme like It's a Wonderful World alienating. I... I'd hard-pressed to imagine that because, as you say, it's all very cheerful in a vaguely creepy and weird and wonderful way. And it's only creepy when you start to stop to think about it. I don't think it's alienatingly so. I don't understand why more Euro designers don't do things like this. These cards could be anything. It's a Wonderful World could easily have been themed exactly the same way as Century Spice Road or any number of other generic. It's like, well, you know... In the 19th century, people traded textiles, and then it's like, yeah, you can do that. That's fine. But <laughs> Or you could be bizarre and wacky and have a whole bunch of things whereby in the middle of the game, you desperately want to say, hey, everybody, get a load of this card. That's <laughs> right. You're all doomed now. I have the ultra laser death tank. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> 
or just, hey, I found Alexander's tomb. Check it out. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's delightful. I, I really enjoy it, and it, it makes me pay attention to what the cards actually are. So many euros, I pay zero attention to what things actually are. So if you might as well go the extra mile. The art's pretty delightful, and so it's just a, it's another la- layer of uh, appeal to a game that's already simple and straightforward and fun to play. And it could have easily been generic. In point of fact, I could easily imagine someone looking at It's a Wonderful World and retheming it to a painfully generic paint-by-the-numbers fantasy rendition. Although I don't know why they would bother. On that note... Wait, what are you talking about? Why are you using this as a segue, Walker? How they com- Stop the segue. Walker, why are you segue? How they completely turned this game on its head and, and went in a completely different direction. What are you doing? Changed up all the rules. <laughs> and put out a two-player version, even though... It's a Wonderful World had a two-player version. This one's called It's a Wonderful Kingdom. Yes. With a stone standard fantasy theme. I was looking at all the cards, waiting to be delighted. Like, I... I, I, Zero delight. I did not get any delight from any of the cards of It's a Wonderful Kingdom. So the chief mechanical difference between It's a Wonderful Kingdom and It's a Wonderful World is instead of drafting, it's an I split, you choose mechanism. There are two card offers on display, and every turn you have to add a couple of cards to the displays. They could both be on the same side. They could be one of of either. And then your opponent gets to pick. Some people really, really like I split, you choose. And I should announce, I am not one of them. There's this weird sense of disconnect. This is not a substantive criticism. This is just how I feel when playing an I split, you choose game. When I'm looking at my hand of cards, and I know for a fact... I can't determinatively keep or reject any of them that I'm entirely subject to the the decisions of the other player. I feel strangely helpless. Now, this is not to say that it's arbitrary or random. On that note, try playing it solo, and then you understand why it feels so arbitrary and random. Do tell. Because that's all all you're doing in in, uh, the solo mode. (laughs) Really? Yeah, you're throwing out... You you pick one and then you put out random cards again and then you draw off this this sort of they call I think a calamity no the cards of calamity uh, anyway it's just a, a deck you sort of put together at the beginning you you draw one off and you put it down face up because that is one of the key mechanisms and it's a wonderful kingdom is that you're putting out these bluff cards to try to either keep someone away or or ladle someone with negative points so that's all you're doing you're putting out cards and you're putting off this danger deck you're putting out cards face down on the one that wasn't picked. I see. So it, it really doubles down on on the two-player game that it really doesn't matter and it's much huh. the same. Well, there's an interesting there was an interesting psychological aspect to how to use your face down cards in It's a Wonderful Kingdom. I did appreciate that because as you say, there are these calamities that are worth negative points. That's all they are. There's certain ways to mitigate them, but not a whole heck of a lot. And do you put down a Calamity face down? Do you put down a good card face down to make your opponent think it's a Calamity? These are things you can do. And that part of second-guessing I did actually find interesting. And I thought it was a good way to leverage the new mechanisms. But at the end of the day, both of us had the same impression of It's a Wonderful Kingdom. This could have very easily been an expansion module to It's a Wonderful World. There was no reason to put up a new deck, no reason to commission new artwork. You could have used the same cards, introduced a small amount of cards for calamities and just lay out the new I split you choose mechanism. And in point of fact, if you have a copy of It's a Wonderful World and you're willing to proxy some cards as calamities, well, you're good. I agree. They, it does have a solo mode, has these little adventures that you can go on. It has all these different modules that you're going to add to every two-player game. You play with the calamities and you add in a module. It could be giant rats. It could be, you know, you got rats on the brain today, Walker. It could be treasures. It could be it could be all sorts of different things. Yes. Giants and there are modules that you can add to its wonderful kingdom that do not precisely replicate something that already exists in its wonderful world. But I should note that it's a wonderful world already has a solo campaign. If you have the Kickstarter version, which I don't really recommend, the retail version is fine. It's not worth tracking down the exclusive stuff. Then some of the additional solo scenarios that are not available in the retail edition add more stuff to what's going on. Uh, and indeed, if you're going to have a campaign system, I'd far rather be the campaign system be part of the solo mode than, as I say, introduce another social obligation. I just really don't understand why it needed a separate retail release. I think you could have easily made it another expansion, especially since, just to talk about the expansion to It's a Wonderful World, Corruption and Ascension, it already is a model of how to introduce new cards. You commented that the deck is huge. A sloppy way to do a big 
deck and have an expansion, just shuffle it into the base game. Instead, when you have Corruption and Ascension, which brings the player count up to seven, so there is now no excuse to play Seven Wonders if you want to play a drafting game that goes up to seven. It's just a separate deck, and everyone, when they start the, the round to draft, draws some from the main deck and some from the expansion deck. It's just a great way to make sure that there's the precise distribution. It's so simple, and yet so kind of simplistic, but it works. True. But sitting here, maybe I'm wondering, maybe it's a COVID thing. No, I think you're right that... that COVID has increased the demand for two-player games. But as I say, I would much rather play It's a Wonderful World two-player than play It's a Wonderful Kingdom again. I'm on the same page. If for no other reason than the theming. Like it really, I really do derive a significant amount of pleasure from the way the cards work. And I do prefer drafting to I Split You Choose. So the base game, It's a Wonderful World, is available on Board Game Arena. You can give it a shot there. If you're really a huge fan of I Split You Choose, then by all means, give It's a Wonderful Kingdom a shot. But I was very disappointed in comparison to its uh, core project. Because one of the great things about It's a Wonderful World is it's an ideal game to have around because it's so simple, it's so quick. The rules are so straightforward that you don't really need to worry about relearning everything from scratch. And it is consistently delightful. I, As far as pure drafting games go, it is real, real hard, I think, to do any better. Yeah, it's very much one of those games that once you've learned the rules the rule book can stay in the box regardless of how long it sits on your shelf. That being said, I will play It's a Wonderful World anytime. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. We read everything you send us and we'll get back to you if we can. Thank you again for choosing to spend some time with us and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.